0: There's probably four to five careers ahead of you. So what are those common skills which will help you kind of, you know, throughout those things? So it's the the concept of curiosity. It's the concept of uh, diligence. It's the concept of seeing things through. Where can you actually develop those skills if you don't have those already? And you can apply those and you can take to the next level, you know, take your personal growth to the next level. How been? How's, uh, how's things going? Oh yeah, it's been uh, still very hectic, very busy. Um, so, which is good, actually. You know, after two years of quiet during COVID period, busy is good now. Um, though, uh, in in our segment in real estate market, uh, situation situation is kind of pretty grim, actually. I don't know if you have followed it uh, lately, but uh, the the demand is through the roof, and supply in the rental market, at least, has kind of uh, fallen off a cliff, basically. So there's a massive mismatch in the market, and it's a, it's a challenge for everyone. And you know, we'll we'll talk about it obviously more. But uh, we, we we help tenants basically, right? But uh, the grind, the tough, how difficult the market is. You know, offers flying all around, and and we have heard news about properties that had like 82 queries, 25 viewings, and 18 offers. I try to fight against that. It's absolutely insane. But, you know, at the same time, that provides good uh, business opportunities. So, you know, can't complain too much either.
1: Wait, so the demand is still high even despite like all the rates?
0: Yeah. Basically, what happened is uh, the um, number of uh, visas issued in last, well, let's say broadly 12 months went up 71% as compared to pre-COVID days. And the number of properties available to rent fell 46% as compared to the prior five years average. That led to a massive mismatch in the market. And we have talked to, we continue to talk to people who have been in the UK since September, mid September. Their classes started or their job started already mid to late September. And they still don't have a permanent place to live. So they are moving from Airbnb to Airbnb or hotel to hotel from one week to the next, depending on where they can find the cheapest rents, basically.
2: So it's a. a, What's what's driving the, the lack of properties? Lack like of rental properties.
0: A Lot of issues there. Actually, several of them kind of longer lasting for for several years. So there's a general shift in the market in terms of uh, individual landlords who have maybe one, two, three properties under management. They leaving the industry while you know some of the bigger companies consolidating more or very large asset management or you know uh, bigger landlords coming into the market. And uh, the government has been increasingly so in last few years uh, being very strict about uh, increasing the regulatory burden on landlords because you know renters market is very big now and uh, they need precautions and safety and all of those things so that means regulatory burden on the landlord and obviously the estate agents as well so there's a churn in the market where a lot of those landlords are leaving the industry. Um, and when they're not leaving, they're staying put, they're finding better yields in uh, short-term rentals. So Airbnb and other places, basically. Um, so if you can, you know, even if 60, 70, 80 percent utility in a month, you'll still end up earning probably dramatically more than what you would earn on a long-term rental. Um, so so it's a, it's a mix of uh, various factors. But the the shift is very clear. Um, landlords are kind of you know much obviously given the the amount of demand they see they're dramatically more picky about which uh, tenants they go for the conditions on the tenants has become much more onerous so for students for example we we work in that market as well in masters uh, with master's students it's not unusual now to see students offering or being asked to pay one year rent up front mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's like insane, you know, six months was the more normal thing. But now it's a year. And even then, if you have a program that's only one year long and somebody else has a two year long program, or if it's a family, the landlord can tie you in for two years or three year lease. They will go for that, even if you kind of pay a little bit tiny bit higher rent with a one year advance. So it's like so many different kind of moving pieces. Just because landlords want to, A, cover the risks and the costs they are covering, uh, they are incurring more and more. Um, and also, there's an element probably of people recouping the losses that they saw during COVID period, where, you know, properties were empty or a lot of tenants back then kind of, you know, tried to negotiate their rentals down, downwards by 10% or probably more sometimes. So there's, you know, that kind of coming out of COVID impact as well on this situation.
2: And is that uh, even with the guarantor, pe- people are asking for one <laughs> one uh, year up front.
0: So if you offer a guarantor, you are well. It's all unofficial, obviously, but uh, nobody gets an offer agreed on a property by offering a guarantor. Okay? okay, so it's basically straight up. They will see when you have eighteen offers on a property, the landlord can pick and choose. Yeah. Half of them have a guarantor, other half are paying up front, they'll choose from other half, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are saying we'll sign up for a straight two years lease and kind of above asking price, they'll go for that. Somebody else mm-hmm. may have, you know, like things that kind of play against tenants is also around if you have pets in this competitive space, landlord is, you know, without being... Discriminating against you because you have pets, they will just go with someone who is offering kind of a you know a better quality tenancy profile. so mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's pretty rough you know <laughs> at the moment
2: So for the benefit of the listeners, ma'am, could you tell us <laughs> what your company does and how you position yourself in this market
0: and what problem sure. you're solving? Sure. so we are positioned in a very simple manner. We help tenants to find and finalize a property. These tenants for us are mostly people coming from overseas who don't know the UK market, who may not have the local connect um, and just don't have enough time at hand or don't want to spend time living in short term accommodations, etc. So they find us, they work with us even before they have arrived in the UK. Um, Using our software platform, AI driven system and a bit of back end support, we organize their search in a way that uh, they have the keys in their hand on the day of their arrival. Um, And not just for the flat, but they have electricity, gas, water, everything completely set up so they can effectively be operational at their new job or studies on day one, day two of their arrival. Um, The problem that we had seen originally uh, because of which we launched this was our own. So my wife and I, we came back from India and we were looking for a property to rent. Took us like almost a month, over 100 hours spent between the two of us visited 35 properties, talked to 15 different estate agents, and it was an absolute nightmare. So that was the original trigger of the idea, which kind of led us to this path to say, okay, how can we make the end-to-end process? So it's not just how can I make the discovery simple or how can I make signing the lease simple? Those are just one odd stops in the overall long journey. So the big problem that we had discovered was that the end-to-end journey was totally broken from a tenant's perspective. Even though there are a lot of prop tech plays out there who kind of say we are doing amazing things, they're all focused on making the life easy for the landlord or the estate agent. But for the tenant, the apart from us, the journey is still completely broken. They have to still go to 20 different places, multiple estate agents, look at the websites day in, day out, constantly call, email, Run, run after estate agents, look at blurry videos to decide and, and whatnot. Um, so that experience is totally broken for the for the tenants. And as a consequence, it's uh, it has a lot of knock-on effects as in tenants suffer. So, you know, they're not present in their classrooms. They are spending time with the estate agents. They're not, you know, focused on their job or training in the first few weeks because they are running around visiting properties or answering messages to estate agents nonstop. So everybody in the chain suffers dramatically um but nobody till we came along really wanted to solve that problem in this unique way that we are solving just because agents and landlords were always the low-hanging fruits in terms of revenue making so you know make a product for them they will always pay very quickly because there's so many problems on that side of the business why do the long march and kind of tough road to solve the end-to-end problem for a consumer segment basically
2: yeah i was just thinking that So then what's the monetization model? Because, I mean, tenants are probably not looking to pay even more when they're already paying such high rent. So how do you monetize the the solution?
0: Yeah, so um, there's a reason why we are focused on the cross-border moves. Right. So there's basically virtually zero support available to that segment of the population when they're coming to the UK or, for that matter, going to any other country. And that's also the reason why we have planned, we have, created our offer in a way that they can actually sign the lease even before they have arrived. So what's the alternative for them today? They have to arrive in the country, stay in Airbnb or hotel or friend's couch or whatever it may be for four to six weeks. Or if the company is paying, oftentimes, you know, companies end up putting up their employees for a month, two months, three months in hotels. That's huge cost. So we charge only a fraction of that and we ensure that all of their journey gets done in a way that their interests are looked, looked after. So we, we don't take any commissions from landlords or state agents, right? So they know, agent, the tenants know that we are completely focused on their well-being and their interest. So that in itself is a huge value add. And then obviously this uh, arbitrage of uh, staying in a hotel for four weeks versus paying us upfront and moving indirectly uh, into your own apartment, that's that's huge. So on average, you know, we have tracked, we have saved our, our tenants over 4,000 pounds. And in addition, about 39 or 40 hours of their time, which can be, you know, worth depending on how you value your time. But that's a dramatic amount of saving for the tenants, basically.
1: So I always think in this space as well, if you're focusing on the tenants, mm-hmm. it's normally like a one-off kind of thing, right? You can't really retain them in the same way you'd be able to retain An estate agent or a landlord so is that something you thought about how do you how do you approach that problem
0: yes you're spot on that is exactly how it goes it's a it's a single transaction um and then we have uh, um kind of back end let's say systems wherein we help them set up electricity gas water all of those things so that gives us a very long tail of uh, recurring revenues but the tenant themselves when they are paying or their company are paying they're paying for that specific transaction what works in our favor, though, is that on an average, uh, um, anyone is living at a rental property for about two point eight years. So now that we have been in the market for three four years, we have started seeing people coming back to us when they're moving again, saying, "Hey, can you guys help me out again?" So that's one very important way in which how you know important way in in in, how, in which we kind of extend our let's say LTV. Second is. Uh, um, we had a very specific thesis around how um tenants are when they're moving they always find more people who are moving so we created worked on a plan very early on to figure out how we can get a lot of referrals from our happy clients so today um over 75 percent over 72 73 percent of our clients are coming through referrals right so our cost of marketing is kind of Peanuts basically, other than referral bonuses that we give, there's nothing. So we, you know, that helps a lot in terms of the overall LTV to CAC calculation. Um, so even though there's no recurring income in the same way as a SaaS software would have when you're selling into corporates or like even Zoom or whatever, um, the LTV to CAC is extremely favorable for us because of those features.
1: And then what if you know, they've rented one time, two times with you, for like the last kind of five, six years, what <laughs> if they then want to say like, oh, we need to go and buy, or I want to get a mortgage? Is that something you cater for? Or is it just so, a rental market?
0: Um, we have been asked that question and a lot of times by our clients, uh, prospective clients, partners, and and whatnot. Uh, we have not yet to uh, kind of, you know, let's say got our feet into the buying market, but that's something for the long term, absolutely. Um, We are still designing what could that model be um, so that we make that buying journey super easy. And uh, just like everything else, we want to lean very heavily on tech and AI to kind of, you know, fast track that journey. But it's still early days for us on the design side of that. Uh, We want to really establish ourselves on the rental market and and kind of, you know, break through the the commercial model we have, uh, on the rental side, we now have access to six or seven more countries where we can launch very quickly. So probably that's the route we are going to go down first before we enter into the buyers market. Have
1: you seen like the, I'm sure you have the kind of business models of Divi in the US mm-hmm. and then like mm-hmm. a opportunity as well in the UK? Yeah. yeah. Do, you have, do you have any thoughts on that? The kind of like, oh, we'll sell you a home and mm-hmm. we'll kind of rent out to you while you build up the equity. Do you have any thoughts on yeah. that kind of business model?
0: So, um, not those specific ones, but broadly, what we have uh, seen is there are quite a few uh, people who are trying to solve the problem in this market, in the realistic market with innovative business models. My um, two cents on, on that overall situation is that as a business, we want to keep asset light. So, I don't want to be in a situation where we are spending, mil- raising and spending millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions to either rent our own units or buy our un- own units and then kind of, you know, inventory manage them. That's a very different business, basically. Right. And not saying it's it's good or bad, but just the economics of, of some of these players who are spending, you know, huge capex on acquiring um, units tells that uh, it over time, it becomes very low gross margin kind of business, basically.
1: i the beginning a of bad press, actually, as well. There's been a lot of kind of complaints coming back, like, who, mm-hmm. who kind of sorts of maintenance? Who pays mm-hmm. for this and that? And mm-hmm. is is it a cut-and-shot transaction, or are you responsible for, like, maintaining and doing all these things? Because technically, you're the landlord, or the company's yeah. the landlord, and you're renting out to a tenant while you're building up the yeah. equity kind of thing. So, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of controversy around that, but it makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, if we just go into that a bit more, is your model purely services is it like a tech platform or like what what does it look like to the yeah. end user so
0: it's, a, it's consider this as a tech enabled service where service element today is uh, restricted to three human touch points so one is uh, we have over um, 6 000 freelancers in the uk who can go inside the property and show your live telecast so it's extremely useful when our clients are coming from anywhere from you know uh, Peru to Singapore to Japan, or, you know they may be on holiday somewhere. So how do you show them live telecast of the property? So you know, that's one human touch point. Second touch point is where you know we are still building systems around it. But uh, when they're ready to make an offer, we have uh, probably the most up-to-date information in the market around which properties kind of settled at what offer price, ex- what price exactly. Right. So when you look at any number of platforms or estate agencies, you just get to see what is the asking price. We get to see the end price as well. And we are very happy to communicate that back to the tenants to say, okay, you know, this is how you compete in the market. And the third touch point, which is uh, something that uh, is also in design, we'll, we'll roll that into an AI, uh, well, machine learning kind of algorithm, is we review their lease as well. Um, so we tell them what's good, bad, ugly, commercially speaking, because now we have reviewed probably over 400 or 500 leases now in the last four years. So we know it's, it's a machine learning problem and they... They like our feedback because we look at so many leases every every week, every month, and we can pinpoint to the accuracy about even the estate agents to so say this estate agent will go for this, that, and the other kind of you know they'll accept these kind of clauses. So you can always ask for these. So we give them a lot of those recommendations as well.
2: And how does that work, Biank? That uh, algorithm, machine learning algorithm. What's the input data and what's the output?
0: this one we are still in design so i wouldn't want to comment on it because you know we we are working with our ai um, um, expert to to really kind of uh, nail that thing down but uh, before that we also have a pretty solid recommendation engine that's uh, working at about 25 30% accuracy rate and that's uh, basically looking at the user behavior their interaction with uh, different different properties whether they are shortlisting, they are sharing with their family members or, or friends, whether they are booking viewings on those, whether they have made offers on those or not, et cetera. So we go all the way to the end of the transaction in the app, right? So we have very, very, very strong signals about uh, um how um, tenants are liking specific properties or not. And then it's a question of you know identifying similar properties and recommending them more of the same, correlating that with the uh, profile so that similar profile consumers, users can get like, you know, equally good recommendations, et cetera. So that's kind of really sophisticated. It is a little bit variable at the moment based on season. So we are still trying to kind of, you know, make sure that it's constantly functioning and constantly improving. Our AI guys themselves are quite uh, excited that, you know, the results are coming out to be amazingly good. Um, So we'll, we'll, in the next iterations, you know, I, I really want to push them to say, okay, one and two property should be the right match. And, you know, over time, and we really put that one property out of like you know we have over a million properties in our in our platform can we reach to that level very quickly where they know exactly one or two properties that would be the match for them they don't need to look at all the other garbage basically
2: so this must work really well because the entire user behavior is aggregated on the platform from end to end from them joining you giving you their data but then you finding them a property absolutely so the the start
0: of the search is uh, around their lifestyle criteria and then step by step, they're going deeper into the transaction, all the way to signing the lease. So we know all of those steps. So we know exactly which property they 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 signed up for, what was the rent they offered, etc. So yeah, absolutely.
2: And how many people have you matched with properties?
0: So the AI system has been used by over seventy six thousand users now. Wow. Um. So we we launched it a while ago and we just let it run. We have, you know, uh, our base base app is available for free on our website. So anybody who goes on our website and just uh, clicks uh, through the menu to look at begin Search, anybody can use it and lots of people use it. Create their accounts and they, you know, add their family members and, and stuff of that nature. So we have always kept that base, base thing completely free. They have to pay us only if they need our dedicated support to say, okay, now things are getting serious and I need support for people to go inside the property. I need, you know, uh, support with my um, offer and lease and all of those things that's when they pay us otherwise they can completely manage their search uh, just by themselves through the app basically but that has taught us how you know what kind of things are valuable to to users of different types basically
2: so i guess even if they don't go for the full service with you to hire you <laughs> for a spe- specialized service they still use the platform and you still essentially benefit from the data that they provide in, in their search absolutely and absolutely what are the key points of disaggregation that you found with your users? Like, is there any certain time where they say, okay, you know what, I've got my fix from the platform, I'm gonna go go somewhere else and continue my search myself. Mm -hmm.
0: So um, we have only recently launched some features which allows them to go all the way to making an offer, et cetera, right? So that part necessarily they had to step out of the platform and do it by themselves offline and, and whatnot. Um, and the new features we have launched uh, is still very early days. So we need to kind of fix those, et cetera, just to, you know, take them take them deeper. Um, but that's around for usual, for obvious reasons, you know, that's where, that's when they were dropping off. Um, but the other thing, which is kind of actually slightly different from, from the question you're asking, but very, very useful is uh, when they are at two extremes of the market in terms of timeline, meaning they are in the market, today when they needed to move in already last week, right? Or they are three months ahead, you know, their moving date is three months from today. Those are the times when you actually don't really get much in terms of supply, even on our app, even after all of the algos, et cetera, basically, because there's barely anything in the market. So that's, uh, you know, we see, because we see what's the target moving date, they they kind of put that in the app. So that is the time when a lot of people fall out because, well, you know, there's barely anything that's already to available this weekend. Which will match and which is the exact right uh, fit for you? That property doesn't exist, basically. So it's it's around those market conditions, and you know we're also learning how to you know message better, so people know exactly what's the right time to start looking for a property. Mm-hmm. Which is generally at six to eight weeks, and when people have hit our platform at around that time, we see quite a long flow for them in terms of sharing, adding more people in their group looking at properties together. Maybe it's, I don't know if they're couples or friends or whatever, but, you know, um, uh, reaching some sort of joint conclusion about properties.
2: Right. Okay. So six to eight weeks is kind of that sweet spot. If I- yes.
0: Yeah. And, and that's actually not a surprise, you know, um, because uh, typically tenants who are living in a property when they sign a lease the lease almost always says you have eight weeks notice or six weeks yeah. notice it's generally eight weeks or two months broadly right so if somebody's moving out on in first week of january they would today or tomorrow with first week of november is when they will hand out their notice basically mm-hmm. right and then the landlord does a little bit of shopping with the estate agents take them a few uh, takes them a few days to identify which, which agent they want to work with, and the agent then puts the property on the market, right? So minus six weeks is roughly the time when most number of properties will show up um, on on any platforms out there. And from that point on, it steadily goes lower as those properties are stamped by other tenants and, and they mm-hmm. kind of go off market, basically.
2: Okay. One more thing I wanted to ask is, mm-hmm. I've been, it's been in a situation before when I'm back home in Ireland and then I'm looking to rent the property just as I start my next, next year of university, this is, you know, three, four years back. And Mm -hmm. there's always that tension in my mind of I haven't actually seen it with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. And you you mentioned earlier, that's one of the touch points you have with your clients. So what's, what's the kind of thinking around that to kind of build Mm -hmm. confidence with the clients that, okay, I, I know what this place is like, I've seen it and I'm, I have a high level of confidence that what I've seen mm-hmm. is accurate. Because just a little yeah. anecdote, I remember renting a studio flat that, you know, looked lovely, looked beautiful at the time. And I think James will attest to the the magnitude of the floor
1: space in the flat was extremely small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think Suraj has a habit of overpaying for almost anything. So <laughs> it, yeah, it, is,
0: uh,
1: it
0: is a challenge, though, as compared to four years ago or, or even three years ago, COVID has solved some of that problem in the sense that it's almost a default now that the agents will have a recent video shot um, of the property that they can share with you when while you're still in, in Ireland, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the question you have to ask obviously still is that, it, is it just a marketing video, right? Earlier they were good at hiding things in a photograph, or they have become good at hiding things in a video. So what we insist, and this is really a, a crucial point, We don't let any of our clients take a property without viewing either, right? So even if they say, listen, you know, I have a friend who will go inside the property, that's still better than just signing property on the back of a video that uh, the agent has sent you, right? Mm -hmm. So someone has to be inside the property. Um, Now, I mean, this summer, like, things were so damn crazy. Sometimes I had to walk out, you know, when people are looking for property near where I live i had to yeah. walk out and do the do the viewing for them just because we couldn't find freelancers in time uh, with the ta- short time notices and all but uh, it's it's a crucial point you know and then with these freelancers because the way our model is structured they are effectively working for the tenant mm-hmm. so they're not going in the property with a marketing point of view they're going into the property with a due diligence point of view
2: right
0: right and we share a script with uh, the freelancer and with the tenant to say okay what's the checklist how do you have to look at every property and assess it right so that assessment starts from outside the property from the street to look at you know street is it like is there are there stores underneath on the ground floor is it noisy is there like a construction site just all opposite uh, you know is there a train train track right next to it and you can hear the loud train all the time right so you start from there the client is on a phone call with or on a zoom call with uh, with the freelancer and then they go inside, they show the entry. If it's a uh, a block of flats, then show the entry hall and then, you know, go into the flat and, and show it uh, thoroughly. And the client is instructed by us, obviously, and, you know, the freelancer as well to say, okay, check all the things that have an impact on the all the well-being, space being a big criteria, but also small things which uh, one may not always know that you have to open the kitchen cabinets and, you know, the cupboards in the bedroom to see if there are mold marks at the back of the wall right at the back of the cupboard right mm-hmm. um or in in the in the bathroom you know you need to check like uh water pressure so all of those things we coach both the sides so you know at least one of them would remember and mm-hmm. and you know that things get uh, properly checked basically and obviously the client can ask uh, to repeat the view go back to a specific room so it's you know not the same as being inside the property but it's the closest that one can come basically In the future, you can also argue whether you can send inside a drone and, you know, all of those things. But hopefully technology will kind of take us there soon enough.
2: I was going to actually ask that because one thing I was trying to get at is, do you think you'd move towards 3D viewing tours? Because I know (laughs) there's a couple of startups doing that (laughs) kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. So um, it is an interesting way of doing it on the buying side. It's already kind of not, it's, it's something that's very common. Um, agents put these 3D tools, tools directly on the listings, um, et cetera. Um, the, element is, uh, the element of comfort that ten, uh, tenants or other people get of asking questions to a local because these freelancers are all local is dramatically different from just viewing the photographs, right? So the questions we have heard being asked is like, okay, you know, what do you think about the security from the station to this building late evenings? Right, or um, are there any smells in the corridor when you were there, right? So there are a lot of things which, uh, you know, a snap in time with the 3D video kind of doesn't capture, yeah. cannot capture. And then second element here is, who actually did that specific uh, video as well, right? So for us to be able to do that video, we need landlords sign off because we are effectively taking photographs of their internal kind of, you know, face, etc. Which is a little bit more onerous as compared to just sending someone to do a viewing. Um, and we don't have that direct relationship with the landlords. We, we, we don't kind of you know, work on that side of the market, basically. So there are a few kind of you know, nitty gritties in terms of who is paying, how much it's costing, and whether it's actually really 100% useful for the end user. Those are all question marks in our mind at the moment. So we have looked at some of these solutions in the past, we have been pitched mm-hmm. at as well. Because, you know, people see that we work with so many tenants, so they come bringing solutions to us. Uh, We never got comfort from our clients that they would be very happy to actually use only tech solutions for this part of the equation, basically.
1: I think you're taking control as well, right? What I got from that is you're not giving up control, as you said, to a landlord who may Mm -hmm. try and hide stuff. And these freelancers are being hired by you. And therefore, they're incentivized to give the tenant the best experience. And you Absolutely. have a you have like a high element of control over that process instead yeah. of the tenant going in blind. So I guess all of the extra expense that you incur because you're hiring <laughs> these people is <laughs> probably worth it in the end from that kind of yeah. um, comfort yeah. point of view from the tenant, right?
0: Absolutely, and you know this is actually what you touched upon. It goes pretty deep into into our philosophy around this space. Real estate, at the end of the day, it's a touch and feel industry, right? You can say relationships don't matter and everything should be all digital, um, et cetera. But people live there. You know, the impact a house has on anyone's mental and physical well-being is enormous, right? So we don't see this being completely digitized and no personal connection, no touch whatsoever anytime soon. Yeah, holiday rentals, fine. But, you know, you're out of the holiday rental in a week's time. Right. Or you have a large developer and you just look at, you know, all of their completely new built places and you move in. If it's not good, then you move into the second place because they have it available. That's fine. But we're talking about 95 percent plus of the market, basically. Right. So those things don't exist. You know, this flat looks very different from the flat downstairs because landlords have, you know, reconfigured this space according to their own personal preferences now how do you decide between the two of them without actually being inside and having some kind of, you know, eyes in the flat and kind of sense of the space, et cetera, basically. So it is, I think, to go completely digital only and considering that uh, there's no human element here in the real estate, residential real estate is too premature in my view. It's a noble goal, you know, but uh, to be honest, uh, um, I don't see industry as a whole reaching that goal anytime soon they may check solutions wise but whether the clients are comfortable doing that yeah different question altogether. It, would, it
1: would be it would almost be like a huge kind of paradigm shift in the way that people think and view their homes and stuff like that right yeah and i think it's part it's also, it's almost human nature like we're gonna spend our whole time inside mm-hmm. here is the home is not just a place to be. It's like kind of a reflection of your character, your personality. It's Absolutely. your safe space, you know, it's where yeah. you where you can be yourself and this and that, right? So it's, yeah. it's like a sanctuary in a way. So I understand that it's not like, oh, you can make the argument, oh, it's like buying something off eBay or off Amazon because mm-hmm. I don't see it in the <laughs> shop, right? It's like, yeah. oh, I can, buy, I can buy a sofa online because I can't see it yeah. in the shop. It's like, that's one article of furniture. That's not the whole place and you can't return uh a rental easily right it's not as simple as yes. just and
0: they're, they're absolutely yes yeah, spot on there you know it's it's basically um you're signing for a lease for a year two years three years even sometimes right it's not easy or to get out or it's expensive time consuming so you want to be sure that what you have signed up actually works right in the same way as you want buy your principal residence without actually being inside why would you rent it without being inside basically or someone that you trust being inside
1: you take you taking notes right, yeah? I think you've done that two or three times, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to come to you next time I rent a property my own because I've
0: yeah. made to mistake
2: one yeah, yeah, one time yeah. too many. Yeah, yeah. It definitely sounds like you know it's an industry built on trust, and it's funny because mm-hmm. there's so, there's such a lack of trust between the mm-hmm. the tenant and the landlord. You know, it's yeah. almost like most tenants, it's the norm to spite your landlord and think you know they're out to get, they're out they're out for my pockets.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it is portrayed as a zero-sum game, um, and it's a bit unfortunate. And, uh, um, you know, there's also an element of uh, an estate agent who's helping complete the transaction. So the sharp elbow tactics of uh, a lot of agents don't help either to give out a good reputation of the industry because they're the effectively the first, uh, you know, touch points. Even before you know your landlord, you would have met a dozen different uh, estate agents, right? So, and this trust element is actually why we chose the business model we chose to say, okay, you know, if you look at the market from a supply demand perspective, the supply is very well organized and landlords, put, most landlords put their properties with the state agents who then in turn, you know, go to Zoopla, Rightmove or any number of other platforms, right? But on the demand side, there's zero trust and zero kind of, you know, um convergence of the demand to come together and be able to drive right solutions, right outcomes for that demand basically, right? So we are positioned on that demand side and our focus literally is on that trust. How do we generate that trust so that they they can come back to us in 2.8 years time, they can buy more products from us, you know, in terms of uh, maybe it's insurance, maybe it's a bank product, maybe it's uh, other things, but uh, they know that we are looking after their interests. Basically, we are not just trying to say, random things about the property because I need to shift this property today.
1: Yeah. Um, what, what about the other way around? I mean, are you sure you've had like really bad experiences with tenants? Do you have any stories there? Is a the kind of, you know, you're just talking about burning trust, is there any kind of tenants that broke your trust as opposed to the other way around?
0: So, um, to be honest, it hasn't happened with us because, uh, we are, you know, let's say still being very careful in terms of who we bring in as a client. So, um, Either my co-founder or I, both of us, well, one of us, we do all the sales calls, basically. So, you know, we we do, we, we kind of, you know, routinely um, reject 40, 50 percent of the calls that come in um, because they are just not the right fit for what we do. Um, and, you know, based on our experience, we know that this this won't be a right match. Um, and occasionally it happens. So it's probably I'm trying to recall in last uh, three years, I can think of probably two or three instances where tenants came in and they were like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll do all of these things. I agree. I understand where the market is at and blah, blah. And then as we kind of went deeper into the process, they kept coming back to us complaining, oh, I don't see the properties. I don't see, you know, the right match. And this is not, and, you know, we look at kind of, you know, the, the options and we talk to them and turns out that they have uh, tightened their requirements as compared to what it was at the start right so the market is at let's say 1500 to 2 to 1700 pound a, a month for that specific type of property their starting budget was 1600 but now they have dropped it to 1550 and then they're kind of you know trying to push it down to even 1500 that's not how the market functions right so we have had three four of such instances i suspect um, which where wherein we basically had to just you know stop the engagement and say listen you know, there's something that we are missing, or this product is not the right one for you. Here's your money back, and please go ahead and and call those agents directly by yourself, um, and I'm sure you'll you'll figure it out. Um, we had one, the weirdest one we have received so far, is an estate agent who reached out to us regarding one of our clients, um, kind of uh, alluding to the fact that someone, either the tenant themselves or someone in their friend unit, or or Someone in their property was uh, smoking pot in the in the balcony, despite you know neighbors having complained a few times. So we got to hear of that complaint, but that was frankly just one kind ever, of, basically.
1: That's pretty mild, to be honest. I mean, I think got. To, I mean, that's nothing, right? Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure there are countless other <laughs> situations you've had that you just didn't hear about.
0: It could be, but you know, we we work with you know going back to your point about long term relationships, and you know. In the long run, we work a lot with the same estate agents over and over again, right? So there's that element of uh, conversation and transaction. I mean, we don't pay them any fee; they don't pay us any fee. But they know that you know clients who are coming through us, they are extremely well prepared. They're very they they're very well prepped about you know what to expect and what not to expect and how the market functions. So the de- deals, as they call it, you know, the deals we bring to them. Are probably the most profitable ones they do ever. So you know, if uh, our clients are creating nuisance, I'm sure we would hear about it from them sooner or later. But so far, only one complained. So you know, it's kind of okay.
2: <laughs> so so my my aunt, you mentioned that you know, average time the tenant is in a property is two point eight years. Mm-hmm. So then, what I'm trying to understand is because from what you've described, there's a large software element going on uh-huh, uh-huh. you know this is this is not just the, what you're offering is not just services but is that reflected in your monetization model as well Like, are do you have recurring revenue streams here or is this kind of a services revenue primarily
0: no so recurring we haven't kicked on um um that one that channel as yet we have a few things in our in our plans but it's too early for us to switch that on. Um, and there are other things around data that we can do, and we have explored those opportunities with uh, with other partners. So tenants, obviously, they're not going to pay anything for you know their data um, uh, kind of thing. But on aggregate, when we're looking at you know every month uh, today, without any marketing, we have fifteen hundred to two thousand users on the app. We know where that demand is flowing. We know what kind of you know behavior is going on. Uh, what are the requirements and all of those things we have granular understanding of the end users which absolutely no one else in the industry does right so we have explored those uh, um, how to monetize that revenue with a few people in the past we haven't switched it on as yet because you know i want to take it to a pretty significant level before we have you know go down more revenue streams for us um, and on the consumer side as well there's a play as well around how um, they get access to a platform for which they are paying some recurring fee? Maybe it's ten dollars, ten pounds, twenty pounds, whatever. But you know, there's there's a game around that as well. We have seen some other startups try and fail just because uh, they failed not because the product was bad or the need was not there. It's just because they came at pretty far end of the journey. By that time, tenants were just kind of tired of doing another, looking at another software, and mm-hmm. you know, the cost of acquisitions were through the roof for them. But uh, there are plays which we can we can make uh, here. The advantages position that we decided to acquire very early on is the entry point, and that going back to the trust factor. So you know, if that first interaction, first product is working kick ass, then there's a very high likelihood that they kind of go and and take additional kind of support from us, basically.
2: Yeah, you can land firmly in the market like that, right? And Absolutely. Then- the data piece as well is like it sounds like a strong motive defensibility, where you absolutely. have this end-to-end data, no one else has it, and absolutely you know, future, no one. Yeah. The more the yeah. more people come to you because they trust you, mm-hmm. you know, the world is you're going to be your oyster down the line with that data. Absolutely,
0: and you know, we we have uh, because of this cross border kind of uh, focus, we not at the moment because we're not yet live in other countries, but you know, on the tech side, most of the work is done for at least six more countries. Um, we can over time also track a lot of these users where they are moving from one country to the other. And you know they may just uh, use Avasa for maybe a short term accommodation, six months in the UK, and then they decide to move to Portugal full time and they use us in Portugal as well. So there's a lot of that data portability that doesn't exist today. And that has a huge impact on the finance side of things as well with regards to things like, you know, you have to build your credit profile in every country individually um, and and things of that nature. So so there are a lot of uh, those things which kind of open up to us over time. Um, We have been very careful not to try our hands at building a lot of these things right now. Uh, because you know, as a as a as a bootstrapping a startup, the resources are always limited. You've got to be careful where you spend your time, resource, and 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 money on. Um, but in terms of our plans and our ambitions, there's a pretty deep and pretty wide kind of you know uh, set of products that we want to include over time.
2: Sounds like a very measured approach.
0: Um, yeah. See, we 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 have the. Um, the joys of living in the UK, it's not West Coast US where you know you you kind of uh, come up with this like, kind of an idea and, and suddenly you have lots of uh, pretty deep pocketed investors uh, from across the globe willing to back you. Right. Yeah. Um that's that's one thing. And second is in in our case, we you know, this this is my second startup, and prior to that, I spent 10 years and nine years in technology investment banking working with tech startups and scale-ups and businesses of all na- nature, right? So my goal was never to play a valuation game and say okay how do i have 10 million views kind of very quickly mm-hmm. the goal with this product was very clear right from start is uh, how do you solve this end to end problem and it's such a huge problem that even tenants when we were you know early on when we were interviewing tenants and all um you could see tears rolling down their their eyes talking about this experience right but no one absolutely no one was solving it. There's no one, well, only a handful of other startups that are talking about it now. And post-COVID and starting this year in the UK, especially when the real estate market went for such a big toss, finally the human resource teams and corporates are understanding how deeply stressed their employees are when they're in the middle of a home search, basically.
2: Yeah.
0: Right, so it's it's that deeper problem which nobody wants to even talk about. You know, it's that 800 pound gorilla we all pretending oh it doesn't exist let's just focus on this little model which can scale up it's not the model that's scaling it's the capital that's scaling and okay. you know everybody plays the capital scale game that's great but has it solved the problem for 95 percent of the market it hasn't mm.
1: So like a so very my- approach <laughs> So Mike, it's interesting that you said um you worked in banking prior to that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um how do you how do you think kind of working in tech MA kind of prepared you for you know the world <laughs> of startups and founders? Because you know there's there's always it's always two camps, right? It's always like I was a founder since I was a <laughs> teenager or I did it straight out of university <laughs> versus the guys who spend five, 10, yeah. 15 years in finance and then made the jump. So what yeah. about your experiences did you really take from the banking side and kind of applied it to um building a company
0: yeah i i think you know first major thing is uh, um nothing in banking prepared me for the craziness of uh, startup world right um of the day-to-day challenges and how to deal with those and, and stuff of that nature when i was working in banking you know they were established platforms so nine out of 10 issues I've faced day to day were not even issues in those environments, basically. Right, so it's predictable
1: do as well, right? It's quite in the corporate yeah, environment. Um, me and Suraj both know through experience as well. It's like, mm-hmm. as you said, ninety percent of the stuff you face is very predictable, repeatable. That you have so much support and layers and layers above you and below you exactly. that everyone knows what to do, right? And it's like a well-oiled machine. And even though the hours are long, there's not really much wiggle room for like creativity or difference. But then obviously you get to the startup world, and the hours <laughs> are probably the same, but they're a lot yeah. more intense hours, <laughs> and they're a lot more training yeah. hours. You have to really be on your yeah. feet, right?
0: absolutely and then you know as, as a founder you're dealing with so many new issues that you have not been faced you have not faced previously right so everything from team building to team management to you know sales marketing design working with you know multiple vendors um multi you know while building the team facing kind of you know nose all day long and then still kind of you know have to return to the team and say oh, well don't worry everything is, is amazing and all of those things are very challenging, and and nothing in the in the banking world prepares you for for that. Having said all of it, tech banking specifically was very useful for me. Right, so I was lucky enough to be in a place where I got exposed to a lot of IPOs. I worked with a lot of uh, management teams who had uh, built their businesses from scratch, and decade, two decades later, they were doing an IPO. Um, I worked with large private equity funds. I I sat on you know I I went for board presentations to large companies and small companies and you know worked with the CEOs and CFOs and and you know board members of uh, lots of different companies. So pitched to investors um, whether they were public investors or private investors for our clients. So I had seen a lot of that kind of you know later stage journey of, of a startup into scale up into a big business basically, and. Uh, um, when it came to kind of you know big picture thinking and setting up big goals and visions, that part was very easy for me because I could see what's happening in a lot of different industries and here in Europe, European tech banking. When when we say tech banking, it's not like you're focused only on one sector. Especially not while I was growing up as a junior. You know, I would work on internet and and uh, hardware and semiconductors and software and IT services on all these subsectors basically. So it gave me that, you know, very long view of how things take place, how things shape up in the tech industry and how tech, per se, is just, is kind of, you know, appending a lot of vertical industries, basically, a lot of different industries. So tech is not just tech in the same way as, you know, just the software, but tech is now kind of, you know, disrupting the real estate industry as we knew it, basically, right, and many other sectors. So I had that benefit of, uh, you know, having seen tech from so many different seats on the table, basically, and working with so many kind of, you know, amazing entrepreneurs and, and uh, uh, executives. So I could bring a lot of that learning into my experience here and say, okay, how, you know, w- what is that kind of process? What is that system that we got to create? You know, on day one, there's nothing, but you have to kind of create something that puts you on, on the on the path, basically. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, for me, it was both negative in the sense that on day-to-day running, there wasn't much that I was, getting bringing over from banking But in terms of long term thinking and big picture and and you know everything it was very easy for me basically it still
1: is uh, yeah that's really interesting that's great insight actually and i understand you kind of started in banking around the time of dot com crash <laughs> if i'm not mistaken <laughs> yes can you can you can you just like put me and suraj and all the listeners into like a time machine and kind of describe what it was like <laughs> post <laughs> dot com crash to so like just be in tech in general
0: so Let's start, like, you know, 2001, which is around the time when I was supposed to graduate from my business school. And uh, a lot of uh, my friends, I I did my master's in France um, from a business school there. And a lot of my friends, they had job offers to start in September 2001. By that time, the storm had fully hit and settled in. So um, early on, there were already strong signs and and stuff and uh, um, people wouldn't get internships. Uh, and, you know, job offers started disappearing. I was lucky enough to get a secure internship that started in August 2001 with a, with a bank uh, um, in Paris for nine months. France and several of the continental countries, European countries, it's usual for master's students want to work, work long, you know, six, nine months as an intern. So I got in in August. September, I saw a lot of my friends uh, who had an offer from various companies kind of fell through. They reached the office on first day in September or mid-September, and they were said, here's a check of 10,000 euros or whatever, 5,000 euros. Travel around the world, come back next year at the same time, and hopefully you'll have a job, right? So (laughs) that was like a pretty big uh, blow to a lot of students. Um, Then... uh, (laughs) I, I'm
1: not. I'm not sure it was so much of a blow. I think there'd be. I think a lot of people would be pretty happy with that, Richmond. <laughs> uh, I was yeah, gonna say. it Sounds know, like a pretty a... good deal. Sounds like a dream. An <laughs> 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 all-expenses-paid gap year. That's what it is. Well, <laughs> I, I
0: don't. To be honest, I don't know how much five k euros will take you, even back in two thousand one, in terms of you know a whole year expense, right? And especially when there are no other similar job offers out there. And don't don't forget. You know, this is like, in a sense, pre internet era just at the start of that you know so you didn't have a lot of opportunities information and a lot of other kind of careers that have opened up now to, to 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 people those were not there and when you are in a serious business school in france or or other countries you want those kind of jobs you have probably taken loans and you know your family has paid kind of you know through their nose to put you there basically so it's it's a huge drain but anyway so 2002 comes along i get an offer to stay back in the Paris office or come join in London office. I choose London just because London, you know, you you get to work with a lot of different countries. Paris office was very kind of France only. Um, And uh, we have six weeks of training. On the absolute last day of training, and we are supposed to start full-time with our respective teams, um, the other person who was meant to join my my team, tech banking team, was fired. And uh, Six weeks of training. Yeah, huh? they they haven't shown up on on the job yet. But last day, gone. Couple of other people out of our analyst group, gone, and we're all kind of standing there and kind of wondering what the heck happened here. Basically, <laughs> you know? till till an hour ago, we were all, all happy, kind of dreaming of getting drunk because it's the last day of training, and now you have like four or five of our new friends out of the job, basically. And then lost in first out, right? Well, not I don't know what it was, but you know effectively, um there was something going on, but you know, yeah, people were out. and then the cycle cuts cycles started basically every two, three months, there were more cuts. The team I joined was like eighteen people. By the time cuts were done, we were probably down to nine or ten people. and uh, I managed to hold on to my job, probably only because I was the cheapest, and I was you know working my ass off. Kind of, you know, 18 hours a day doing all the things that nobody else would want to do, basically, Uh, just keeping, keeping my head down and getting the work done. No deals for probably nine months all you were doing is sitting churning out the pitch deck after pitch deck and kind of you know just making the logo look beautiful a b- bit more beautiful basically uh running yeah, oh, you're, ma- you're making me um
1: you're making me reminiscing about my type of banking <laughs> yeah, oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. i may
1: miss miss that logo arrangement so much oh man <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah oh day goes by that i don't think about that
0: <laughs> exactly right so uh, but eventually things started turning around kind of around early 2003 or mid-2003. So for, first I got a staff, I think, on MNA deal sell side. Then I got a staff from the first IPO in, in London for like two, three years, basically. Um, and, and, you know, um, then kind of things started rolling again from there. Um, but it was quite interesting because uh, at that time I saw several banks completely cut out or mostly cut out most of their tech banking team. And then when the boom came back in 2005, 6, suddenly you know I started getting calls from all of those banks who had fired most of their tech teams uh, in in 2002, 3, saying, "Hey, we have this role, come join us," and blah, blah, and you know we are growing again and, and stuff of that nature. So so yeah, you know it was uh, quite a roller coaster kind there. of thing. Absolutely, yeah. And then you know 2008 came along, so had to see some of that downturn again for a few months. Though by this time I was at a different bank uh, and they were much better positioned in the sector than my first bank. So 2009, 10 were probably like incredibly busy. In terms of deals, I may have worked on more deals in those two years as compared to the first five years in banking, basically.
2: Wow. Wow. And you mentioned that after your nine year saga in banking, you (laughs) started a previous startup. If I'm not mistaken, that was a fintech, right? yes mm-hmm. so how yeah. so tell us a little bit about that but also after let our listeners know how critical do you think it was to have started that company to mm-hmm. the success that you're currently having with avasa AI? Mm-hmm.
0: yeah so that one came came about because a friend of mine who was uh with Lehman Brothers, and then continued with Nomura. When Nomura took over Lehman's uh, here, he hit upon this idea around um, trading platforms for the Indian capital markets. And uh, initially, our thesis—excuse me—initially our thesis was around uh, B two C segment that consumers will use more and more technology to kind of you know buy shares and and stuff of that nature directly. Um. So we decided to go back. So he came up with the original idea. He came up with the original plan, did a lot of research. I helped him shape up some of those things. By the time our kind of you know research and analysis was done, I was quite intrigued. And by that time, this is towards the end of 2010 or so, I was already itching to go out and do something in the corporate world or something mm-hmm. on my own. Because so I had by the time it was it had become clear this point that we are discussing earlier that, you know, the institution gives you so much support that you never really know, you know, what is it that you are contributing? If it's another monkey instead of me, they will probably generate the same set of results or maybe even better results. Right. So how do you how do you know that you're good at something is by doing it all by yourself. So this opportunity came up. Um, I uh, with uh, with this friend, both of us, we, we went back to India. He's also from India originally and we set up the operations there. And uh, I was a part of the operating team for about four, four four and a half years, roughly. And by that time it was clear that it wasn't like the hockey stick growth that we all hope for startups to be. Um, and, uh, you know, it didn't make sense for the business to fund me in London, which is where I wanted to get back to for personal reasons. So um, I ended my operational part there, but uh, it gave us quite a lot of, uh, you know, gave me quite a lot of uh, deep insights into that earliest stage how do you kind of build that product? How do you collect a lot of user and, and kind of client kind of feedback, uh, bring it back to the team to be able to kind of create something that's meaningful? How do you sign up those initial clients? How do you build network of supporters who are kind of, you know, helping you kind of extend your reach even deeper, um, et cetera? So um, I still use a lot of those learnings. You know, we have like lots of uh, very good partners who connect us with, uh, with you know, different kind of uh, uh participants who who market participants who help us out or we help them out etc Um, many of my previous investors have invested in this startup as well so that's kind of a straight up tangible kind of you know um, uh, thing from there and then fast forward a few years we exited that business we sold that business last year so uh, while I wasn't involved in day-to-day activity of the selling, I was uh, uh, my my friend was still running this startup, so very kind of closely, you know, involved in discussions and just to see that end journey as well of what happens towards the end of that you know startup phase. And now you're part of a bigger kind of business, so I don't see this new part, but at least till the end of that journey, we could see all of it with mm-hmm. all the, you know goods and bads of that process basically so all this while i had seen that process only from an advisor perspective but this time around you know saw part of it from from the entrepreneur's perspective as well
2: nice so sounds like you gained a lot of insight from that experience to take forward with future ventures this one and future ones
0: absolutely yeah and you know it's a it's it's kind of a interesting one in the sense that you know the m&a part of the Equation is not talked about enough in the startup industry, Mm -hmm. right? So it's almost always thought of as an exit and you get sold. And, you know, that's one of the exits along with IPOs and all. But uh, just kind of, you know, bolt on acquisition is another thing that we evaluated a couple of them while while I was still there or later on. Um, How do you kind of, you know, gain a scale? How do you gain market share Um, or, you know, how do you acquire tech uh, um, alone? So those are some of the things which uh, stayed with me as an MA banker which i took into that startup and then from a startup to the next one you know you kind of see actually implementing some of those principles and then learning from those and bring it to the next one it's mm-hmm. quite interesting to to think of this as a as a whole business rather than just like a small venture that's only one track way of growing and you know we just kind of keep doing the same things which uh, we read about all the time in, in in newspapers and magazines basically
2: so it's a lot more organizational the approach absolutely being
1: like an organization yeah so if, if i'm if i'm 21 right now and i've mm-hmm. just graduated from uni and mm-hmm. i'm just like kind of fresh face looking at the world like what the hell do i do would <laughs> you recommend someone to go down a similar route you have and kind of earn your stripes in a in a financial or a corporate job for a decade mm-hmm. or to kind of act on your ideas now and kind of go for it and fail fast mm-hmm. like what's your philosophy right. around that
0: yeah see it, it's a uh... It's a very wide question in the sense uh, everybody is different. So, you know, there's no one fit answer. So you have to kind of probably think of a framework here. And and my framework always has been what is it that uh, interests and excites you as an individual, right? So if you are that person who is amazingly good at uh, creating a lot of ideas um, and uh, (laughs) executing on them and kind of, you know, just working on some, maybe it's on the software side, maybe it's on the marketing side, that doesn't matter, but, you know, creating new things just because you're passionate about it, then working in big banks and consulting firms is the wrong place to be because you don't get that bandwidth, basically, right? So you go into those environments because you your bent of mind is slightly different in the sense of, you know, over time you want to work in larger corporates and see how they function and and stuff of that nature, right? In my case, it was even slightly different, which is uh, the only thing I was really exposed to was investment banking. I didn't know how corporates work. So my brother used to work in investment banking before I joined banking. Uh, I had a few other friends before me who found internships in banking. So I had kind of pretty good understanding of what they do. So I kind of uh, entered there almost a little bit by default. And back then, um, banking and consulting were kind of pretty much the premium careers as uh, uh, startups and scale-ups is right now on campuses right? So it was a little bit easier choice in that sense as well. But eventually, everyone has to look at what is it that interests them and excites them and try to find the best fit for that. What you get on the um, banking side is a very early, very quick exposure to very, very, very serious decision making um, at the corporate level. So, you know, as as a junior person, analyst, you would be sitting with CEOs and founders and Thinking about and helping them shape up million dollars, hundreds of millions, billion dollar deals, basically, as a startup employee. Even if you are very early on, that part of your experience may be very far away.
1: Now, perfect insight. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I agree that it's completely down to the individual. Um, and I would add to that as well. It's like sometimes, if you're twenty one, in particular, you just you just don't know what you want, right? It's very easy to like. I feel like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. most people it's like you know you're a teenager and you have something you like and you kind of have an idea because a lot of the time you're kind of forced to in school right when you're kind of Mm -hmm. like in your late teens you're kind of forced to have an opinion on what you want your career to be Mm -hmm. even though you may have no clue and it's only by going out there and doing things i mean the same could even be said for people in their 30s and 40s you know it's like Mm -hmm. you may have all the experience in the world in a certain area um, yeah. But you can only know if that area is right for you once you tried something else. You know, like, oh, maybe yeah. I like this. Maybe I can take it up. And I think that there's a, there's a great lesson there. in no matter what age or stage of life you are and just trying new things and, mm-hmm. you know, making sure you find that right thing that you're good at and you want to spend your life doing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this this element, I was about to say this even before you, you made the last uh, uh, statement. The <clears throat> people who are in their early 20s, you know, that's the... Um age group we are we're talking about they have four to five decades of working experience in front of them okay in my experience itself that means four to five different careers mm-hmm. right so it's not a back framework to even look at okay, even if you were to work in multiple careers, you know one career which is you know banking consulting corporate, let's put it all together in 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 a bucket. another one is uh, you know startup scale up exit third one could be you know you want to do something really deep in the um in the kind of you know uh general population well-being side right so which is not like a that commercial operation but you know much more kind of uh, uh NGO kind of side of things there could be other things you, you may want to be an artist right so but there's probably four to five careers ahead of you so what are those common skills which will help you kind of you know throughout those things so it's the it's the concept of curiosity it's the concept of uh, diligence it's the concept of seeing things through where can you actually develop those skills if you don't have those already and you can apply those and you can take to the next level you know take your personal growth to the next level that could be another framework to use when you're kind of making those early choices about career career basically
2: that's brilliant advice Yeah, I think a lot of people get stuck in the paradigm that once I get into an industry, that's it. 40 years Mm -hmm. worked. I mean, I think this is dying away now, now, especially (laughs) after COVID with the great Mm -hmm. resignation, remote working, people really taking a lot more control of their lives. Almost, it's almost becoming a fad to be like an entrepreneur, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I want to start my own business. What problem are you solving? I don't know. I'm just going to start a business. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? But, uh, yeah. You no, know, that's. Yeah. And I think by doing what you just said, you also try a lot of different things, see certain mm-hmm. similarities that you like most in these different aspects,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then unify them all together. And kind of think after you know yeah. five, seven, ten years of doing that, yeah, okay, I'm gonna tie them together and go for this route. I mean, this is the absolutely,
0: route. absolutely. And you know, there's there's a, 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 another model which I saw got was exposed to in France, which is. Uh, Um, At at my business school, you were required to have 18 months of working experience by the time you have graduated. So people like me who came from India had a bit of experience work there that gets counted towards 18 months. But, you know, more or less people would would work um, in in kind of, you know, in France or in other countries to acquire that work. And a lot of students, a lot of my friends, I saw them combining three different industries in those 18 months. So six months in banking, six months in corporate, six months in something else, right? And when you are at a place for that long a period, it's not just bring me coffee every day for the next six months. It's actually you are the junior most member of that team. You actually have to do the work. You actually have to do the analysis. You actually have to run the presentations. You actually have to be part of that product launch kind of team, which is calling all the, you know, uh supermarkets to make sure that your product is 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 placed perfectly right so you act do actual real work and that gives you a much better understanding of what you may be doing if you're joining at least for the next two three four years right? Mm-hmm. so that's that's a different approach to say you know how do i shape my career in a way i can work maybe six months in three four different roles six months each and then make a choice if that's not possible then what you're describing actually absolutely makes makes sense to say okay a couple of years and three different things that really really interest me and then kind of take a longer view
2: yeah makes a lot of sense so i have one final question from my side that i would love to ask you if you could go back and speak to yourself at age 22 what would you say to yourself knowing what you know now
0: age 22 let me dial back where was i okay i just arrived in france um, the the first important would be learn French quicker than what I did eventually. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly amazing to to be in a culture and and you know be fully fluent in in the language and uh, uh, and and fully steeped in the culture. Huge 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 dividends you earn out of that. Um, but also more holistically, um, start daily meditation practices immediately today and I stick with it for the rest of your life. That's one thing which has made a huge impact in my life in the last 10 years. And I would have loved for that impact to positive impact. It started already much before when I got into this.
2: That's very powerful. And you do that every day now?
0: Yes. Now, um, took me years to get into that uh, habit of doing it every day. Um, I was regular from 2013, 14, but regular meant, you know, I would do it for a week and then I'll fall off for the wagon for two weeks and then I'll come back and then I'll fall off and then I'll come back. Mm-hmm. But now I'm on a daily habit for, for several months now, which is good.
1: And it's just, probably- just quickly, is, it, is that like, uh, What does it do exactly? Does it give you kind of like focus around your day? Does it help you kind of shut out the noise? Does it help you, you know, focus on the task at hand? Like, how does meditation help you personally?
0: All of the above and more. Um, So, (laughs) I think the the most crucial one for me personally has been um, this element of um, having just a little bit of gap between me and the outside world, meaning that, you know, when you're facing like those daily and hourly ups and downs in the startup industry, they don't impact me emotionally as much as things were 10 years ago, right? So I can take that distance immediately even in that specific instance and use the appropriate tool for that specific situation. So that in a sense means that, you know, much less stress, much more relaxed, kind of, you know, feeling much lighter overall um, in, in my approach to things and can, play with many more options at any point of time even though things are kind of flying like crazy all around me at any point so for me that's the biggest one and that has a lot of downstream positives which were all the above that you were referring to earlier
2: probably fine being disciplined enough to do that for 10 minutes a day or however long you do (laughs) it for it adds to your discipline in multiple other fields absolutely I remember there was a book I read about 10 years ago called The Willpower Instinct by mm-hmm. Dr. Kelly McGonagall. Have you heard of it?
0: No, I haven't come across this one yet. But literally it's about increasing
2: your willpower and the first chapter mm-hmm. is about meditating for just 5 minutes a day, just mm-hmm. focusing on your breath, and what yeah. researchers actually found is that that dramatically increased people's willpower for, you know, a- avoiding uh I- I- impulsive decisions, temptations, yeah. sticking to tasks they have to do. Yeah, even uh, I forgot his name, but James, you might you might know his name, the CEO of Def Jam, which is a record label in
0: the states. He actually meditates, uh, meditates as well, meditates quite a mm-hmm. lot. Yeah, um, and, you know, once I got on this journey, I started recognizing those patterns in a lot of uh, you know um, entrepreneurs and and executives and in, in kind of very very large organizations that uh, a lot of them are serious practitioners um not just dabbling but uh, probably they have been on similar journey where you know five minutes was a challenge initially and then you kind of get to that five minutes and then, then you push for 10 minutes and then you know weekends now nah, i'm sleeping because you know last night was super late so i can't get up early in the morning how do i so you know you have to go through all of those challenges but you know it's just like life basically There are so many things that get thrown at you you just have to keep getting better to deal with it so it doesn't impact you so You know, that late night still doesn't impact that 7 a.m. meditation practice if you have one, right? So over time, things improve and you get better and better. And yeah, absolutely, you know, that has a lot of uh, positive impact and a lot of other things you do in life, yeah. It's
1: It's just discipline, right? I mean, I always... I always made the point to everyone, pretty much everyone that I meet about just going to the gym and having some mm-hmm. kind of fitness regimen, right? Because it's exactly yeah. so many parallels with what you just said, sticking to something, mm-hmm. persevering over a long period of time, mm-hmm. setting aside e- and kind of an hour, two hours each day to it. Yeah. and never deviating off that. And you kind of build like a self-accountability model, which is, okay. you know, you know, a lot of the time that people that don't meditate or they don't go to the gym, they can be quite skeptical because it's mm-hmm. like, what, what's the point of this? It's, um, yeah. you, You're just doing it for sure. Or you're doing it for vanity or they don't understand it because they haven't done it and they don't see the effect it has not just on kind of in the moment but Mm -hmm. on other things as well so as you said yeah it's like the meditation can calm your mind for a bit but it's also like you're teaching yourself the discipline that you can carry over into other areas of your life whether that be you know at work in your relationships or anything right that meant that mental discipline and the same with the gym as well so it's a really Mm -hmm. interesting point you touch on there and i just wish like if i had a blank check and i I need to start a company all of the time in the world i would build something you know in that area around discipline around Mm -hmm. probably in in the health and well-being space
0: is something that's just so overlooked right absolutely but you know the the way i mean we think about it is uh, also how we can share like, you know, these this piece of uh, knowledge nuggets that you were throwing just now, James, as well. How can we share that to begin with uh, only with people who are around us, right? So in my team, we have a daily 8.30 a.m. meditation practice session. We do it together, right? So everybody joins in. The calendar invites says 8.29 a.m. so that everybody has a minute to start to join. And then 8.30 we start. 15 minutes meditation, we do it together. We have been doing it for two months now, probably on a every single day basis, um, Monday to Friday, obviously. <laughs> and uh, people like it so much that last week in one of our team discussions, somebody suggested that, listen, we should do an afternoon session as well, because by the afternoon, you know, everything has hit the fan and, you know, people are kind of stressed out and also had lunch. So the afternoon session is kind of going a little bit on the downhill. So how can we turn that situation and let's uh, do a one let's do it between one to 2 p.m., right? So we do that five to 10 minute thing again together as a team, whoever is able to join their people who are on client calls and stuff, obviously not, not them, um, but others, others join in basically, right? So it's just building that discipline also for the rest of the team, but also giving them the tools which helps them kind of keep the calm and, and, the, and the kind of composure throughout the day and keep up their energy levels as well as much as possible. In fact, I have been asked by one or two of the team members personally about something that they can do at the end of the day as well so they feel energized uh, going back home as well. So you know, <laughs> that's how it works. You know, eventually, one of them probably is going to take your idea, James, and create that uh, discipline and health well-being, combine all of it all together and, and create something amazing. You never know.
1: Yeah, there's, there's so many kind of players at the moment just floating around, but I don't feel any of them really... They don't really get to the core of the problem. they all we're mm-hmm. we're sitting in the phase, particularly in like fit tech and nutrition tech and stuff like that. It's very, you know, it's very kind of verticalized and very siloed. And mm-hmm. we we're yet to mm-hmm. find something that can be easily accessible. Because what I see, I'm very interested in the space, you know, I am all about my fitness, and am all about my nutrition and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just see a lot in that space of like we're catering only for athletes or people mm-hmm. who are already fit, and there's very little work kind of done. So I think it's a lot harder, right? It's very easy yeah. to market to ath- athletes, but it's very harder mm-hmm. to get to the the everyday person and ask them to give up time of their day or change their daily habits. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do. The best technologies are often just take existing habits, right? Which is why it's so easy to market to someone who's already training and be like, oh, have you thought about this Whoop? Have you thought about this Fitbit? Have mm-hmm. you thought about this kind of device or thing? Mm-hmm. And it's really digging into the kind of psychology behind you know, the nutritional aspects and mm-hmm and staying healthy which is so hard and it probably i mean it probably comes back to education from when you're young right so you just start to in my mind i'm now starting to see oh, how big the problem is and why it hasn't been solved yet but you know advances in technology time people understand it better Mm -hmm. who knows in the future there'll be opportunity there definitely
0: yeah you know we we'll, we all live in hope that's the bad habit entrepreneurs have so you know absolutely i'm sure somebody is thinking along the same lines as you are creating something that you you have in mind james i'm i'm sure this will we will all see one big one there with your name hopefully soon on on that uh, that product
1: and I'll, I'll come to you for the ipo as well of course
0: yeah yeah <laughs> i love those sessions man ipos are amazing
1: yeah yeah i've never done one is it like um is it as manic as i hear it is kind of
0: um And more, and more, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and for months, <laughs>
1: yeah. No. I mean, that's 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 most of finance, right? But I think the IPO has that. It has like a real tangible end goal. Like, yeah, if you're if you're if you're going to look at one place in finance where it's like, all right, we're working for months on end towards mm-hmm. a really good goal, like an IPO, is a goal worth striving for, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. and you know, it's it's uh, also a massive. Uh, Training, especially, you know, when I was a junior banker, it was a massive training around uh multiple stakeholder management. All right. So in a room full of uh, probably 30 people, there are bankers and consultants and lawyers and accountants and company, obviously, and shareholders all sitting together trying to hash out a page on business description. Like, you know, how do you even manage that? You know <laughs> it's insane. I mean, a lot of the work, like a lot of other things we do in life is kind of, you know pretty kind of um, grinding but uh, it's exhilarating at the same time because when you see the news come up on financial times or or on news channels that you know the company that you've been working on for for months has gone IPO and hopefully has performed strongly in the aftermarket after launch then that's amazing yeah
1: I'm sure sure it feels better when you're the actual founder though right
0: Um. Yeah, they all told me kind of the same story, but very quietly, very gently. So I don't know. Maybe that's that's a that's a that's a skill I need to develop. I guess you know. (laughs) Didn't didn't want to hurt your feelings. (laughs) 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 Never
1: apologize for being uh, passionate. I love it.
0: No. 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 You know, things come. I mean, I I do see that. You know, my my personality also evolved over time. That when you are and you have gone through so much in terms of ups and downs you tend to be a bit more measured in your reactions for you know whether it's super big or super low basically so maybe that's what i saw with those uh amazing success stories when i was in banking i'm
2: well, sure it's very inspirational as well Early in your career seeing these people doing this and then you probably, probably yeah. lit, lit, lit a fire inside you that you know <clears throat> one day i'm going to do this
0: yeah and no, absolutely and you know that's uh it's uh it's an ongoing kind of discussion in my mind, not not so openly. So, you know, when um, big investors ask you, ask you, okay, what's the exit story here? Hey, I want to do an IPO. But then I know that, you know, that kind of turns people off because so few IPO success stories. Like, no, listen, you know, there are three sets of buyers who would <laughs> be seriously interested in acquiring this business. And then obviously there's the IPO as well. You know, if things fly, why not? Um, but yeah, you know, it's a... It's it's a it's an exercise that I think everybody should go through. Every entrepreneur should go through in their life, whether it's for their own business or they join a latest stage kind of a business and go through the IPO for that one, and then come back and start something that they then take to the IPO. Or you know, if uh, if you're kind of in that uh, space where you are a banker, lawyer, or consultant working on IPO projects, absolutely, it's it's, it's thrilling.
2: Awesome. I might have to become an investment banker to just see an IPO now.
0: <laughs>
1: James is turning in his grave. Oh. Let, me, let me just stop you right there, man. I mean, I love you. I don't need to make a decision you'll regret.
2: <laughs> but my aunt, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us. I really learned a lot from
1: hearing you and appreciate listening that. to your journey as well.
0: I appreciate, appreciate you guys hosting me here. Really, really great conversation. Thank you very much.
1: Anytime, man. Absolute pleasure. All right. Take care okay,
0: and keep in cool. touch. All right. Cheers. See you. Bye-bye. See you, man.